Well, good morning. Welcome to Redeemer. My name is Brian Paget, and I am one of the pastors here. We are in a series in Luke, uh, kind of doing this series over the next, uh, well, we have another year and a half before we complete it. <laughs> so uh, we broke it up over two years, and we kind of have it spaced out with different sermon series in between. And um, anyway, uh, today, uh, sermon is brought to you by the letter H. Um, <laughs> The little Sesame Street throw back there, yeah. I thought about doing it like Elmo, like, Elmo says. But most of the kids aren't in here that would appreciate that, and so anyway. Uh, but no, I've titled it Hypocrisy, Hell, and the Holy Spirit. That is also the name of the first music album I'll ever drop in 2030. Um, in our text today, Jesus gives these warnings and encouragements from Luke 12. Uh, in, in the previous section, if you were here last week, we went through Jesus giving the woes to the Pharisees and the lawyers. And at the end of that chapter, we learned that the Pharisees aren't really happy with Jesus, uh, and, and so they're kind of angry, they're upset. Uh, but what it says that they're starting to do now is they're, they're starting to question him about many things, and they're trying to provoke him, is what it says at the end of Luke 11. In this section, it opens up with Jesus speaking directly to his disciples. Now, what you need to understand is this next like chapter 12 is kind of another discourse of Jesus, but it's going to have different audiences that he's speaking to. So today he's focusing on the disciples. This crowd um, that's gathering in now, so these, this, these Pharisees and lawyers, it says, are questioning him and trying to provoke him. Uh, and so th they've kind of stepped up their game, their aggression toward him. It's not, you know, happy stuff, but they're, they're doing this on par with, you know, maybe what it's like to be on Twitter today. Uh, and so, you know, people think that social media is the problem, and it's like, yeah, this has been going on since before social media. Uh, but this crowd is now gathering, and I want you to understand about this crowd. It's really more mob-like. Uh, Jesus has had other crowds that have come, uh, but this crowd's a little different. Now, you got to understand, when the Pharisees are now kind of stepping up their aggression toward Jesus it's, and provoking him, the crowd that's now coming around him uh, is, is a little more animated. They're not just out in a field in a wilderness listening to Jesus anymore. Uh, and actually, the word that it says there, it says in verse 1, it says the many thousands of people. Uh, literally, the word translated would be a countless number. Uh, the, the author, none of them would know exactly how many. There were so many people that were gathered there. But this is a huge crowd. Uh, but we know they're trampling over one another. So they're not just all kind of standing around, right? We know this is a little bit more of an animated, perhaps even a violent crowd that is now gathered around. <coughs> And it's against this backdrop uh, that Jesus is going to speak to his disciples. Now, this is a bit of an intimidating, maybe even a stressful environment uh, to find themselves in. But that's where our text today will focus. So let me read verses 1 through 3 to start us off. Luke 12, 1 through 3. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark, <coughs> have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. <coughs> Excuse me. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. All right, so while this crowd is growing and people are being trampled, Jesus is focusing his attention on the disciples and with each of these three sections we're covering today, you're going to see warning and encouragement. And he begins with this warning about the Pharisees. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
The leaven, uh, leaven or yeast in the Bible has both positive and negative connotations. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. This would be an example of where it's negative. It holds a negative meaning. Luke records that the leaven of the Pharisees being, is hypocrisy. If you were here last week, we went through the, or the, the woes. There were six different woes that Jesus had for the Pharisees and the, the lawyers. And really, all the woes have to do with them being hypocrites. It's coming around what Jesus is saying here. But this was more than their teaching. It wasn't less than that, but it was more than that. It was about their way of life, their practice. Their whole life was built on hypocrisy. But I want to talk about this term hypocrisy. For most of us, if you've grown up in church, you've heard that the term hypocrisy was a term for uh, acting. It was a stage actor's term, right? And so basically it was about pretense, uh, pretending. Um, And so the sermon could have been brought to you by the letter P today. We could have gone with pretense, punishment, and paraclete. But some of y'all have been like paracletes, like football cleats? Like, no, paraclete meaning the Holy Spirit, but some of y'all don't say that, so I chose H. Today's lesson is by the letter H. But I want to talk about uh, hypocrisy here. Because it is a term of acting, but we got to understand something. What actors would do, right, an actor today, they know that they're pretending to be something they aren't. Like, they know that. And so the idea behind hypocrisy, if we want to take it that literally, what we tend to do is say, oh, this is what it is. It's people pretending to be religious, but they really aren't. Like, they pretend to be spiritual. They pretend to be holy. They pretend to be godly, whatever, but they really aren't. The problem with that is that it kind of assumes that the person is just kind of being deceptive out in public, but they know on the inside they're really something different. But there's actually something deeper going on here with this word that we need to pay attention to. This term uh, hypocrite is actually the word hypocrisis. Hypocrisis, okay? I had to spell it out in a way that made sense to me. So if any of you are like, like the people that like look at words and going, what is that? It literally says who, like the question who, po, P-O, cre. I did K-R-E-E and cease, like ceasefire. I don't know. That's how I remembered it. So I just don't want anybody to get the idea that I'm actually that intelligent. So I know some of you think that, but I'm not. Here's what this term literally means. You ready? Pretense, duplicity, insincerity, hypocrisy. So there's that word hypocrisy. But these are all kind of related words. They're all tied together. It was, it was a, used, a term used for stage acting. Uh, pretending to be someone else. When Jesus is using the term, he's not talking about stage acting. When used the way Jesus is using it, this word carries a deeper understanding. Uh, And so think of it in terms of that word duplicity. Duplicity means contradictory doubleness of thought, speech, or action, or the quality of being double or twofold, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Two weeks ago, I preached on Luke 11, uh, 14 through 36, and Jesus talked about our eye being single or whole. <clears throat> and the focus of that was having one allegiance and one devotion to Christ alone. Throughout the scriptures, we see uh, rebukes and warnings about being two-faced or double-minded or duplicitous, hypocrites. <coughs> Excuse me. Sage actors know who they are, right? They know who they really are. They know they're just pretending for a show so you can enjoy this. But the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and these lawyers is different. Theirs is rooted in duplicity of mind and heart and soul. The greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. All is the key word there. And here's why I bring this up. Because the whole all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is tying into this singular devotion. This this good eye, this healthy eye that has one focus, one devotion. We're not double-minded. We don't split devotions. We are singularly aligned with Christ. We have one allegiance. It's Jesus Christ. But the second is like it, right? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. But it doesn't include the word all in there. It doesn't say love all your neighbors as you love all yourself. 
And I'm not saying don't love all your neighbors. That's not, <laughs> the word all is not included in there. The reason it's included in the first one is because of this idea of devotion. You will not rightly love your neighbor or yourself or justly love your neighbor or yourself unless you have an undivided devotion and allegiance to God. Your love for God is all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Pharisees are a great example of this. If Jesus polled the crowd that day, 100% of the Pharisees and lawyers would say they keep the greatest commandment. They would say they keep the second greatest commandment. Uh, in fact, what was it, Luke 9, Luke 10, whatever, we had the parable of the Good Samaritan. It was a lawyer that came to Jesus and claimed that he was obedient to the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. And then he tries to catch Jesus to, to justify himself. He says, who's my neighbor? That's when Jesus gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan, which basically reveals you aren't being obedient to the, greatest, the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor, which is tied to the fact that you're not obedient to the greatest commandment. They claimed to love God and neighbor. The Pharisees and lawyers did. But they also loved themselves. Now, loving yourself isn't bad, is it? Depends on what we mean by that. For the Pharisees and lawyers, Jesus exposed that their love of self was about self-preservation, self-exaltation, self-righteousness, and self-justification. Loving themselves was not about caring for their bodies or their minds or their souls. It wasn't about any of those things. Uh, but it was about being right. It was about being exalted. It was about being revered. So when I say they love themselves, hear that more as like narcissism or egotism rather than a healthy love for oneself. They were devoted to themselves and to God in their minds, souls, and actions. They were duplicitous. And this is not easy to identify in someone. And Jesus warns them to beware of the Pharisees of the leaven, uh, 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 the leaven of the Pharisees. He wouldn't need to warn them about something that was very obvious. <clears throat> so Jesus warns them. I don't know if you've seen yeast. Uh, if you bake a lot like I do, um, I use a lot of yeast. I don't. My wife has used yeast, though. I've seen her do it. Uh, but I do bake a lot. I just don't do yeast. It's weird because it bounces and jumps. At it's living. Right? And it's little. Anyway, it's little. Yeast is really, really little if you didn't know that. But it's powerful when it works through dough. Here's what it does, right? Is it works through dough and then it puffs up the dough, right? It makes the dough look thick and big and everything. But it makes it look bigger than it really is. It doesn't give more substance to the bread. It just puffs it up. And that's kind of what's going on here. This leaven, this negative view of yeast is these Pharisees are like this leaven, like they're puffed up and it's deceptive. It looks full. It looks like there's a lot in there, but it's really a lot of air and space. There's not much going on. There's no substance. It's just this yeast is worked through. So the leaven of hypocrisy is still with us today, and it comes to us in a variety of ways. Uh, and we, too, need to be aware of it. Now, many people will say this about the church. The church is full of hypocrites. That's why I don't like church. It's full of hypocrites. Are there hypocrites in the church? Sure. Absolutely there's hypocrites. But this is usually said of Christians who claim Jesus and then sin. A hypocrite, though, when they sin, a hypocrite will try to cover it up. They'll hide away. They'll, they'll try to protect and present themselves in the best light possible. Even when they're caught, they will talk about the negative thing in such a way that it's not as bad. Or, or even better, they will deflect, accuse others, change the subject, move into whataboutism, and turn into the victim. <laughs> and whole organizations and denominations and churches can be guilty of this too, not just individuals. But Christians who sin that are not hypocrites, when they sin, right, what do they do? They acknowledge and confess sin. They seek forgiveness, reconciliation, repentance, and they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They're not hypocrites. Do we all know all of our sins? No, we don't all know all of our sins. So is it possible that you're doing something sinful as you're going about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? Yeah, it's entirely possible. But you're not a hypocrite in that sense. 
you're not being duplicitous. You're duplicitous when you serve God and yourself, or when you serve God and money, or serve God and country, or serve God and political party, or serve God and fill in the blank. You cannot serve two masters. Jesus made this very clear. You are a hypocrite if you can call out the evil of others while completely dismissing the evil of your own tribe or party or denomination or whatever. Now, hypocrisy gets the most attention and heat from Jesus. What the Pharisees and lawyers ultimately do is serve themselves. God is a means to their end. You cannot serve two masters. You will always choose one. And the reason these groups could not see Jesus for who he was is because their, eyes, their eye was dark due to their self-righteousness, their self-serving, self-justifying devotion to themselves. And Jesus was a threat to their self-worship and self-idolatry. And this extended beyond their own person and included the nation and their way of life. Thus, they accused Jesus of working for Satan in Luke 11. But Jesus tells us that light exposes darkness, right? Exposes the deeds done in darkness. And that's why he tells his disciples that everything revealed will be uncovered. The hypocrites will be revealed by the light. Now, <clears throat> I would argue that God has been shining a light on the church in America for some time now. And we're beginning to see the leaven of hypocrisy. Why do you think so much is rising to the surface uh, regarding a racism and abuse in the church today? Not that these are new. Just think of the number of well-known, well-respected Christian leaders who've been exposed recently for all types of abuse. And we're only beginning, I believe. Up until the 2016 election, there had been many great strides toward racial reconciliation in the broader American church. But in 2016, it all unraveled and fell apart. Then came false accusations of CRT and wokeism, which has essentially set us back to the days of the civil rights movement, in some cases even earlier than that. These are not the only things we're seeing, but these are rather large ones we see in the church today. Jesus warns of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He then tells them that eventually everything will be revealed and uncovered, and this leads to his encouragement. Remember, he gives warnings and he gives encouragements. Verse 3, he says this, Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. That therefore ties back to what he had just said about the Pharisees about what's going to be uncovered in the warning of the leaven of the Pharisees. He encourages the disciples here to bring to light what is said in the dark. He's telling them, like, this is anti-hypocrisy. Who you are in private, be who you are in public. What's been said in the dark, say it in the light. What's been said in private, say it from the rooftops. But he's also, there's something else going on if you see it in the language. Jesus is also talking about himself here. What you've heard me say in private, say out loud. Jesus isn't trying to cover up his ministry at all. He's not like, he's not someone that went into a cave and had some revelation revealed to him and then comes out and just tells everyone, believe me. Everything is being displayed right before their eyes. There's nothing hidden about Jesus. He's not someone separate when he goes a stone's throw away who he is here. And so this is what's cool about these gospel accounts is you have these stories where the disciples are with Jesus and they're getting to see some of the things that he's doing. And he's telling them, go proclaim these things. You don't have anything to hide unless you have something to hide. But this is the beauty of light, right? When those who know the light know that the light cuts away the darkness, destroys the darkness, even for the Christian that has done something sinful and dark, we know that the light is the best thing for us. We bring it into the light. I'm not here to cover up my sin anymore. I can confess and acknowledge my sin because he's faithful and just to forgive it and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Whereas the hypocrisy is we start to cover up, we start to have false pretenses, we start to present ourselves as better than we are or more holy than we are and things of that nature. And the Pharisees and lawyers, they have things to hide. They have things to keep quiet about. 
They'll have you sign NDAs to relate to modern day things. Why? Self-preservation. They are ultimately more devoted to protecting and preserving themselves, their way of life, their whatever, than they are devoted to God, uh, to the God they love to proclaim publicly. When you are double-minded, two-faced, duplicitous, a hypocrite, then you are always at war to protect your double devotions. So if one devotion conflicts with another devotion, you have to make justifications and excuses and whatnot to keep balance, right? You have to cover some things up in order to preserve the status quo. It's exhausting, but pride is really powerful and doesn't grow weary very easily. Jesus came to give life, and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He has nothing to cover up. He tells his disciples to go proclaim what they've heard in secret. Go say in the light what was said in the dark. If you find yourself covering up and hiding things, you need to stop and ask the Lord to shine light on you and reveal hypocrisy. If you find yourself being defensive when someone addresses sin in your life or something inconsistent with what you claim to believe, maybe you're being a hypocrite. If you find yourself always defending those in your tribe or your party or your group or your church as though they can never be wrong or do wrong, then maybe you'll find hypocrisy. If you're always accusing, attacking, trolling, mocking other tribes, parties, the church, etc., then maybe you're a hypocrite too. I fear sometimes that people think that because they've called out injustices in the church or in politics or in this country or with organizations, that they're being like Jesus when it's possible you're using justice as a cover for hypocrisy. It goes both ways. You can use righteous acts and just acts to be a cover for your hypocrisy. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Proclaim out loud what Jesus has taught us. Do not fear the light and be holy and undividedly devoted to Jesus. Let's go to the next warning, 12 verses 4 through 7. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. All right, so Jesus follows his warning of hypocrisy and, and the encouragement to live boldly and speak boldly in public what they've done in private with a warning about fearing man, basically. Fearing those who can take your life. Now, you're going to have to ask yourself this question. Why would that be the next warning? Why do they need to fear for their lives? Okay, and we're going to come back to that later, but I want to put that out there now. You can probably see the connection yourself. The disciples are witnessing the heat Jesus is taking from the Pharisees for his very public ministry and teaching. So Jesus addresses the fears in them about what these, uh, what these people might or could do to them. <clears throat> Things are different with this crowd. Remember, this is a crowd that's not just gathered out in a field. They're a little more hostile. It's more of a mob-type crowd. And the Pharisees and large are trying to provoke Jesus. As Jesus is calling them to be public with what Jesus has taught and shown them, there's a real threat on their lives. Jesus doesn't negate that with what he says. Jesus doesn't try to say, guys, don't worry about it. They just hate me. They're going to be fine with you. In fact, he's obviously very honest with them all the time that if they hate me, they're going to hate you too. Jesus is calling them to be public with their lives, and he acknowledges the very real possibility that they could be killed. And so he begins this section with, I tell you, my friends. Now, do not miss the comforting words there to Jesus' disciples. He knows they are afraid, and he steps into their fear with, my friends. My friends, how comforting and encouraging. He tells his friends not to fear those who can kill the body and do nothing else after that. 
And he brings it into proper perspective for them. They can kill the body. They can do nothing else. But there is one to fear who, after the body is killed, can, has the authority to throw you into hell. <clears throat> and now we're all really uncomfortable with Jesus, aren't we? <laughs> Maybe not, right? Like some folks love hell more than they love Jesus, I think. And listen, there are those going to great strides today to remove and or reframe what hell is and isn't. This isn't new, but there is a current growing effort to send hell to hell and be done with it. It seems unloving of God. It seems wrong to people. You know where the reality of hell isn't being reframed or removed altogether today? Among those who suffer great injustices and oppression. The people who want there to be no hell are often those who do not understand justice. And on the opposite side, there are those who are really hell happy and are convinced that it belongs to everyone not like them, realizing that they themselves are probably the ones destined for hell. Now think about the context here. Israel is an oppressed people by Rome. They've suffered many injustices at the hands of Rome. But Jesus is warning about those who can kill the body, both among the Jews and the Gentiles. <clears throat> Look, just because Israel suffered as a people that doesn't mean that their hands were clean. The Pharisees and lawyers, in fact, were unjust and unrighteous. They led people astray. That's what we learned in the last chapter. They kept back the keys to the kingdom of God. And we must be careful not to assume that because people are oppressed and suffering injustice, they automatically have clean hands and everything's okay with them. We must also be careful not to use their sins as reasons to neglect them or not listen to them and further perpetuate their suffering. We really need to understand and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. Okay, so the Greek word here for hell is Gehenna. And this is why you all came this morning, because you were really interested in learning about hell. And it refers to an area that's just north of the temple in Jerusalem where they burned garbage regularly. Uh, it was a site that was originally the place uh, of where Israelites would sacrifice children to Baal. But when King Josiah came on the scene in leading Israel back to God, turned that place into a place where trash and other refuse were burned constantly as a reminder and a symbol to God's judgment for the evil Israel had done. Gehenna was always on fire and smoldering, and Jesus takes this and tells them of the eternal condemnation awaiting those who remain in their condemned state. The whole world is condemned, and Jesus has come to bring salvation to all who believe in him. This is John 3, 16 through 18. Without Christ, the whole world stands condemned. God is just and God is righteous. He alone has the authority to cast into hell and he alone has the authority to save. Jesus is not trying to freak out his disciples. He is telling them to fear God, not man. He's getting their eyes up off of man onto God and who he is and what he can do. And he tells them, yes, I tell you, fear him. Then he encourages them and comforts them. He points to the sparrows, the many sparrows and the hairs of their head. The sparrows are cheap. They're nearly worthless. You could buy five sparrows for two pennies. It's what the poor purchase for food and for sacrifices. But Jesus tells them not one of these sparrows is forgotten by God. Folks, that's who God is. <laughs> not one of these sparrows is forgotten by him. What we consider to be worthless, God gives it great value. God cares far more about creation than we do. And this is something that we Christians need to repent of. I'm not saying go worship the earth, but we have the command from Genesis 1, 28 through 31, that we're to rule over and cultivate the earth in a way that reflects God's rule and reign. And we should be leading the way in caring for the planet that God's made. It's not about fixing it because we know God makes it all new. We know this, but it is about accepting our call to be good stewards of the earth that God has given us. And just like we steward everything else, we do it for his glory and for our good. But he does not forget one sparrow. Not only that, he knows the number of hairs on your head. 
Not one is lost that he doesn't know about. God who is to be feared is compassionate and loving. He knows us deeply. I love Psalm 103. It says that he remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame. He knows the number of hairs on our head. Now, losing hair here and there is not really something we all pay attention to. I know some of you have lost a lot of hairs, and it is something you pay attention to. But I think you get my point. (laughs) God cares about what we deem to be lesser and worthless things. And Jesus says, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Okay, now, I don't know if you caught on here. Are we to fear God or not to fear God? Right? Didn't he just say, fear him who can take you and throw you into hell? And now he says, don't fear him. Which one is it? <laughs> you know, fear God or don't fear him? He said, yes, fear him, but now he says, fear not. And it's both. When we fear God in a sense of reverence and awe, we do not fear God in the sense of, say, a, a hostile enemy or a terrorist or someone that's seeking to harm or kill us. We're not to be terrified by God. You're more valuable than many sparrows. He doesn't forget one sparrow. He knows the numbers of your head. You are of great value to God. What a comfort to Jesus' disciples. So what he's kind of getting at here is there will be people that want to hurt you, even kill you. But Jesus is pointing them to the one who will bring justice and the one who will keep them forever. Remember, he's called them friends, right? He said, I tell you my friends. This takes us to John 15, where Jesus tells them that I lay down my life for my friends. All the world is condemned because of our sin and rebellion against God, but Jesus came to bear on himself our sin and rebellion and condemnation, suffered and died on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 says Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It quotes Deuteronomy 21.23 that says, Cursed is every man who is hanged on a tree. Jesus hung and died on a tree, the wooden cross. He was deemed to be cursed by God. Why? So that we might receive the promised blessings of Abraham and the Holy Spirit by faith in Christ Jesus alone. Jesus died for his friends, not so that they lived on eggshells around God, not so that they lived in fear of man. No, he died to give us full, whole life. He died to reconcile us to the Father and and to never let us go. We who are friends of Jesus are of more value than sparrows. Fear God, not man. Do not fear God like you fear terrorists, for he is a good father who greatly values you. That's what Jesus is getting at in his fears of fearing God and not fearing God. Let's read the next part, Roman, or, sorry, Luke 12, 8 through 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. <clears throat> All right. You can kind of see, again, the progression that's going on here. Jesus warns about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He warns of fearing the Pharisees and the, the lawyers and others because of their harm or death that they may bring to them. And finally, he's warning us now about denying Jesus um, and the Holy Spirit, which we'll get to that one here in just a second. And all this is connected. I believe it all ties to the warning that Jesus gives about the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So he encourages them not to be like the hypocrites, right, Uh, who love to cover and hide who they really are, but to rather be who we are in public and in private. And because the disciples belong to Jesus, uh, they know that this is going to be costly for them. That temptation to pretend to be something you aren't in the other direction will be strong in an effort to not be hurt and killed, right? So it's, I'm going to go out in public and pretend I'm not a Christian, and there's also hypocrisy in that. 
in order to protect themselves. So he warns him not to fear them, to fear these men, but to fear God. The fear of God, reverence and awe of God, is how we should live our lives before a watching world. If they live in the fear of men, they're in danger of the same hypocrisy as the Pharisees. And here is the, in this final section, it all comes together in confessing and denying Jesus, as well as what he says regarding him and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says here that everyone who acknowledges him before men, Jesus, the Son of Man, which is his favorite title for himself, will acknowledge before the angels of God. Now, we don't see this in the translation, but what Jesus is saying here when he says he's acknowledging them before God and the angelic host is he is saying that he will acknowledge them in himself, meaning Jesus will stand before God and the angelic host and declare, you belong to me. Therefore, whatever is true of Jesus is now true of you. It has to do with our identity, right? So this is more than just uh, going around claiming, I believe in Jesus. It has to do with being identified with Jesus, belonging to Jesus. Let me try to help us understand this a little better. Let's go to Hitler's Germany for a second. With all Jesus is saying combined here, uh, it would be like a German man or woman who decides to walk right out into the open and begin loudly preaching against the injustices, oppressions, and murder of the Jewish people, not fearing what the Nazis might do to them. And when they are confronted and asked if they are Jewish, they said yes and chose to be treated as the Jews were treated. Now, don't take this analogy too far. The idea here is that you are identifying yourself with Jesus, thus being treated as Jesus was treated. So what's going to be true of Jesus is going to be true of you. When you identify yourself with Christ, you need to understand what you're getting yourself into. Not only here, though. So he's like, don't live in fear here because you also identified with Christ in the heavens, in the heavenly host, with the angelic host before God, because Jesus is standing up on your behalf going, he's with me, she's with me. So we don't have to live in fear of man here because of what Christ is doing for us there. But there is a physical identifying with Christ, and there's going to be stuff that comes with that. When you identify with him, you do so by trusting him, yes, but also obeying him, becoming like him. It wasn't the weak, the powerless, and the poor that despised Jesus, but the wealthy, the religious, and the powerful. By identifying with Jesus, we are also identifying with his kingdom. And his kingdom is a threat to all empires and kingdoms of the world. He is a competitor to our devotion and our allegiance. He is a threat to our way of life, our mythological histories that we create for ourselves. When you identify with Jesus or acknowledge Jesus before mankind, you are identifying with the one seen as the enemy of the prince of this world, Satan. The context here is about being mistreated, persecuted, harassed, hated, and drugged before synagogues and courts for their association with Jesus and his message, his kingdom. They're not going after Jesus' disciples because they're being gracious, kind, loving, and merciful. No, it's because Jesus is a threat to their religion, their country, their tribe, their way of life, their hypocrisy, and their very lives. It's not because Jesus' disciples are jerks, trolls, aggressive, rude, violent people. It's because of their devotion and their allegiance to King Jesus and because they're spreading the good news of his kingdom to all. So acknowledge would... Acknowledgement of Jesus before mankind is more than just telling people you believe in Jesus. It's belonging to and becoming like Jesus. And this is very public so that we are not one person in private and another person in public. And the public witness of Christians in the church is extremely important. Denying Jesus means you deny, Jesus will deny you before God and the angelic hosts. Jesus will not claim you if you deny him before mankind. Denial of Jesus connects to hypocrisy. It can come from those who proclaim true things about Jesus, yet deny him with their very lives. And it can also come from people who deny Jesus publicly while privately claiming him as well. Both have divided allegiances. Both have divided devotions, just like the Pharisees. 
Now, remember what Jesus said about being his disciple. We looked at this in Luke uh, 9, 23 through 27, which I preached a few weeks ago. And I'm going to reread this real quick. This is Luke 9, 23 through 27. And he said to all, this is Jesus speaking, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they've seen the kingdom of God. Okay, let's look at what he says here. He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, that's a big phrase. Anyone wants to be my disciple, what must they do? Deny themselves. Deny yourself, deny himself, herself. This is not talking about denying you exist. <laughs> that's not what it's saying. It's also not talking about neglecting yourself, just letting yourself go. Deny yourself has to do with giving up your devotions and allegiances to yourself or anything else. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must deny yourself and acknowledge Jesus, take up the cross and follow him, which means to obey him, to become like him. Now look what Jesus says next, right? He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This ties to what we're seeing here in Luke 12. Self-preservation is actually self-destruction. It has to do with putting your own self-interest ahead of everyone else's. So you acknowledge Jesus when things are good, but when following Jesus becomes a threat to your livelihood or physical well-being or something you truly value more than Jesus, you will deny him. Do you believe Jesus wants to give you true, whole, real life? Do you believe his kingdom is the righteous and just kingdom of God? Do you believe that he's come to rescue you from the kingdom of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of his light? Do you believe he loves and cares for you? If he told you today to sell everything and give it to the poor, would you? Whoever would save their life here will lose it, but whoever loses their life for Jesus here will save it. Notice what Jesus goes on to say. He talks about those being ashamed of him and how he will be ashamed of them before God of the angelic host. It's what he's saying in our text today. Acknowledging Jesus means denying yourself. Your life is now not your own. You belong to Jesus in his way. And why would anyone deny Jesus? Self-preservation. You cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other, be devoted to the one and despise the other. Hypocrisy is a fool's errand. When you are placed in the position <clears throat> where your two loves conflict, you will pick the one more valuable to you, thus showing you never were truly devoted to the other one, but using it as a means for your true love. How many today are honestly using Jesus as a means to their own self-serving ends? How many today really, really need our country and our government to be Christian because it gives cover for our hypocrisy? How many cover up their hypocrisy by proclaiming they're being persecuted for Jesus? And folks, listen, persecution in America is profitable business. I'm not saying there isn't actual persecution. There is. But those who are seriously persecuted for Jesus are not seeking to profit off of it. Let's read the last two verses. Three verses, 10 through 12. Luke 12, verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. All right, well, here we go. The unpardonable sin, right? Whew. We're hitting on all the big ones. Thanks, Jesus. Thanks, Luke, for putting this together to where we got to talk about hell and the Holy Spirit being blasphemed. So this is a good one. Now, I remember in high school wondering if I had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Has anyone else ever wondered if you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Is it just me? Um, 
Now, my understanding of blasphemy at the time was taking the Lord's name in vain, which I have since learned the way I was taught is not exactly what the Bible means. So if you've ever said, my God, that does not mean you took the Lord's name in vain. Not saying you have to go around just saying that all the time either, but you, know, you can still say my gosh or OMG, but whatever. Um, now, maybe in some cases you did take the Lord's name in vain with that. Profaning the Lord's name is more than just words. When we as Christians or the church say or do things that bring shame and dishonor on the name of God, we profane his name. We, we, we take his name in vain. Why? Because we bear his name as his people. So when we use God's name as a curse or we curse people in his name or we curse him himself, we're taking the Lord's name in vain. There are other ways too, but I bring this up because I always sort of thought these were together, right? That blaspheming the Holy Spirit was tied to taking the Lord's name in vain and breaking the third commandment. But let's go look at this and get some context here. First, Jesus says, if you speak a word against his name, you can be forgiven. Okay, so if you deny Jesus... It's not a done deal. You can be forgiven. You can acknowledge that. We got Peter on record doing this, right? But if you don't, to the end, Jesus will deny you before God in heaven. But it's not unpardonable. But the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And this is kind of a big deal. That's why we all want to know about this one. It's like, wait a minute. Like, I like this idea of forgiveness. Are you telling me there's one that we can do that we cannot be forgiven? Yes. So there's this one sin that will not be forgiven. The word blaspheme means to insult or abuse, slander or curse. When associated with God, it means to do these things toward that which is holy or sacred. Now, there's debate about what this sin is exactly. Some argue that it means committing some heinous sin, such as murder, adultery, or taking the Lord's name in vain. There's nothing here in the context to back that up, and we know that those sins are forgivable in other places in the Bible. Some argue that it has to do with falsely saying things about the Holy Spirit. But again, no context or support for here or in the Bible. People get a lot of things wrong about the Spirit and can be corrected and be forgiven of that. Some argue that this is about attributing the miracles of the Holy Spirit with Satan. Now, this is getting closer to what is likely the answer and can somewhat be argued from the context. After all, in Luke 11, we read about the Pharisees saying that Jesus drove out demons by Beelzebul, which is Satan. But Jesus says, no, I did it by the finger of God, which is the Holy Spirit. In Matthew and Mark, the unpardonable sin section is connected to that section about the Pharisees saying he works for Beelzebul. <clears throat> And so there is a sense in which those are connected. They argue that no one can commit this sin today, these people do, uh, since it's only related to when Jesus was physically present in the first century miracles because those ceased to exist after the first century. So you have some cessationists out there that believes, oh, all the miracles and the gifts of the Spirit are done, therefore the unpardonable sin was only around when Jesus was around, so no one has to worry about it anymore. Okay. The problem with that, as D.A. Carson says, is apart from the question of whether miracles take place now, Jesus elsewhere warned that miracles are not necessarily the criterion of true discipleship. That's why people will come to him saying, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these things? And he'll say, I never knew you. So they do not necessarily reveal the Spirit's presence and power. The more likely answer is that <clears throat> the unpardonable sin here is when, when, when who Jesus truly is is made clear to someone... <clears throat> And they not only reject him, but they reject him because they believe the works by the Holy Spirit are actually the works of Satan. They would attribute his miracles, healings, other signs and wonders, even his resurrection, all done by the power of the Holy Spirit. They would attribute those things as works of Satan. And there comes with this a hardening of heart and the continued rejection of, the, uh, of who they clearly see who Jesus is. The Pharisees were not guilty of this. Some people want to do that, like, oh, the Pharisees committed the unpardonable sin. They were not guilty of the unpardonable sin. But they were getting close. They were getting in that direction. Um, if you're worried that you've committed the unpardonable sin, that's probably a good sign you haven't. 
uh, because it's doubtful that someone who has committed this sin uh, would be grieved by any sin at this point. The hardening of heart would be so strong. Now, God knows, and we likely might not know if people around us have committed the unpardonable sin. Jesus ties us what he's saying about acknowledging him and denying him. He is clear that denying him for saying things against him can be forgiven. That's what we said about Peter. He denies him three times, but he is forgiven by Jesus ultimately. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, meaning you don't just deny Jesus, but knowing who he truly is, outright reject him and claim that the Holy Spirit is actually Satan, there is no forgiveness. So with the Holy Spirit, right? So Jesus is bringing this up. He brings in the Holy Spirit. Now he's going to say, hey, here's a warning about the Holy Spirit. But here's encouragement now for his disciples. When you are brought before synagogues or courts and rulers and authorities, Jesus says, do not be anxious of how you will defend yourself or what you should say. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will teach them in that very hour what they ought to say. Jesus knows what awaits his disciples. Jesus knows it will be intimidating, scary, difficult, painful. He knows they'll be hated on account of his name. He knows their social and religious status in society. He warns them of denying him and warns of those who go further in that or blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But Jesus' main goal here is to encourage his disciples and prepare them for life after he ascends. He is going to send the Holy Spirit on his people to give them power to be witnesses of Jesus. He is not leaving them alone. He is sending the helper, 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 helper and the comforter. So that when the worst case scenario happens and they find themselves before the Sanhedrin, a Roman court, or a synagogue, they don't need to be anxious or afraid for the Holy Spirit will teach them what to say and what to do. They don't need to be anxiously trying to figure out how they're going to defend themselves and what they should say or not say. Trust the Holy Spirit who dwells in you to lead you, teach you, and empower you. And it still may mean death for some of them. Okay, so here's some questions that I'm wrestling with, and and I'm going to leave them for you to wrestle with too. Why would they be brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities? Or or why would they be brought before religious leaders and government leaders, if we want to make it more generic? Jesus says, when they bring you before them, meaning he's, he's assuming, right? He's saying, this is going to happen. Are they being brought before them because they fed the poor? Are they brought before them because they healed people? Are they brought before them because they're peacemakers? Have you ever wondered this, or is it just me? Like, what would make the religious leaders and government leaders want to bring you in, flog you, torture you, and possibly kill you? Or kill you? Is it just because you claim to believe in a man named Jesus? What is it about Jesus and his gospel of the kingdom that he and his followers are deemed so great a threat that they need to be killed or neutralized in some manner? I'm not going to answer those questions. I kind of have maybe in the sermon, but I want to leave those questions with you. I want you to wrestle with what it is about trusting and following Jesus that poses such a great threat to religious and government leaders. Why would they want to kill Jesus and then take out his disciples? And I want you to wrestle with what happens when Jesus' gospel of the kingdom is conflated with things like empire, colonization, political parties and movements and things like that. Is it possible that people hate us today because we're more American than Christian? And you can take American out and fill that in with whatever one. Another country, another empire, political party, whatever. How do you know they hate you because of Jesus and not something you conflated Jesus with? I mean, if we're going to be dragged to court, right? Let's just do a scenario here. You're dragged to court. 
and you're being condemned for belonging to Jesus, and they ask you, are you a Christian? And you respond with, what do you mean by Christian? And that's a wise answer, by the way. Don't immediately go, yeah, I am. Just trust me. You don't want to go, yeah, I'm a Christian, because that means one thing to you. It might mean something entirely different to them. So let's keep playing this scenario out. What do you mean by a Christian? They say, one who believes that because of their God, they have the rights over all countries to steal, kidnap, exploit, and impose their laws on them. In that moment, are you confessing to that Jesus and that Christianity? I'm not. I'm like, nope, not dying for that. I'll deny that Jesus all day long. No, that's cool, man. I'm not a Christian now. Like, that's what you mean by Christian? I'm not that. And I'm bringing this up for a reason. We're in danger of being hypocrites that Jesus warns his disciples about. We may already be the hypocrites Jesus warned about. Within all of us, there's likely a level of hypocrisy. We need to own it and repent of it. But repenting isn't just saying the words, I repent. And it's definitely not just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is a whole person thing. Mind, body, soul, heart. We're to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I fear today that so many are quick to call persecution, call things persecution, when instead we probably should be listening, lamenting, and repenting. When we survey the history of the church in America, there are a lot of evil things that have been done in the name of Jesus. It's still happening today. Frederick Douglass is recorded as saying the Christianity of this land is not the Christianity of Jesus. And I think he's right. And I'm not saying there are no true Christians here. There definitely are, and there have been since the founding of this country. But like Jesus' parable of the weeds and the wheat, I think there are a lot of weeds growing up with the wheat right now. And Jesus, the harvester, will come and separate them out. But we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We need to address our sin, our hypocrisy, and repent of it. We need to bring it into the light and see it for what it is. It is ugly. It is humiliating. It should cause us to weep and cringe. But we mustn't look away either. And I'm talking about both personal and corporate sin. We should grieve and lament the things we've done that have dishonored God. And we should seek forgiveness, which Jesus promises to give us and is faithful to give us. He can do this because he died on the cross for our sins, our hypocrisy, our rebellion, and he rose three days later defeating Satan, sin, and death forever. We need to repent by turning back to Jesus in faith, trusting his will and way, and obeying all that he's commanded us in the power of the Holy Spirit that he's given us. We are being given an opportunity in this country right now to be a distinct and set-apart people. It won't be popular. It won't be easy. We'll be seen as a threat for calling people to give their full allegiance and devotion to King Jesus and nothing and no one else. It will be costly, but we need not fear man. Fear God, but not like a terrorist. You are more valuable than all the sparrows. So acknowledge Jesus before mankind. Trust the Holy Spirit to teach you and give you the words when you are brought before the religious leaders and government leaders because of Jesus' name. And beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Let's pray. Father, We have many, many issues that have been left unattended to. Not just as individuals. I don't know what everybody in this room has done or going through. But corporately as the church, not just Redeemer Church, but as we are connected to the broader church in this country. We mimic more the Pharisees and lawyers and the Israelites who refused the prophets and even killed them than we do Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself. Father, I'm, I'm asking you 
to shine the light on us corporately. Not just here at Redeemer, the church corporately. Not because you hate us, because you don't, you love us, but to finally expose these things. I think about the churches in Revelation. Jesus, you write to the churches in Revelation how much you love them, how much you see these things, and then you say, I have this against you, I have this against you. And the point of sharing those things wasn't to crush them, but to, to return that, for them to return to you. And it reveals our hypocrisy. When the light gets shined on us and we become defensive and we become aggressive and we become backbiting, we become all these other things, try to cover it all up. We're just like Adam and Eve in the wilderness when we were in the garden. We finally realize we're naked and ashamed and we seek to create our own clothing to cover it up because we can't fathom that you would kill some animal and cover us, that you've crushed Christ, you've killed. The Son of God has died on the cross so that you could cover us and clothe us in your righteousness. And in your justice and in your goodness and your mercy and your kindness. Father, we're like Isaiah. We're the days of Isaiah. We are a people with unclean lips. We have blood on our hands. We have done things that have been awful and evil. We have conflated the gospel of the kingdom of God with political parties and countries and with different types of ideologies, with different ways of life. We've crushed people under the weight of our Pharisaism, our hypocrisy. We've held back the keys of the kingdom from the poor and the needy. That's why we don't see them in our churches in large part. And so God, have mercy on us, a sinful people. Expose our hypocrisy Expose our cover-ups. Expose our, our weak efforts at trying to hide ourselves behind a tree. When you walk through the cool of the garden, you know exactly where we are. God, help us to come clean. And to not blame like our parents did Adam and Eve. It was the woman you gave me. It was the serpent that you created. This is your fault, God. But to own it and to step into it and say, God, I've done this. I've committed this wrong. I've held to this lie. I've promoted this false thing. I've encouraged this thing. I've ignored this blasphemous thing that your body has done. And we would own those things and trust that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we need that. Do not leave us as we are right now. Please, God. You would be just to do it. You would be absolutely righteous to just hand us over to our filth right now. And I'm pleading with you, God, have mercy on us. Change us. Don't leave us like this. Holy Spirit of God, come. Do again what you did in the days of the early church. Do again what you're, for us what you've done. for. Do for us what you're doing right now in Iran and in China, all throughout the African continent. What you're doing in Latin America right now. God, do that for us. Please have mercy on us. In Jesus' holy name, I ask these things. Amen.